The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 8 through 16. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from every evil and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous." And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning. My name is Lee-Eric Fesco, and I'm the Director of Discipleship here at Christ Presbyterian Church. Uh, First of all, I want to thank you for giving the opportunity of uh, being able to uh, be with you this morning. And I also want to thank Russ uh, for allowing me the uh, privilege of doing this. Uh, Prayers to you, Russ, and and your entire family. Uh, Lord bless you. I don't know if you all have heard, but uh, here in the United States of America, we are fast approaching an election. In fact, many of you have probably already cast your vote in terms of uh, being able to utilize the early voting procedures. And and I don't know if you've noticed, but there seems to be some tension surrounding the election. And to tell you the truth, I'm not sure that's terribly unusual. Uh, In fact, in terms of subject matter, discussion in general, right, the election or politics uh, are at the top of the list that of things that we're supposed to avoid in conversation. If you're hosting a a gathering or a dinner of some kind, what's the number one subject you're told to avoid? Asking that question, there's probably two things that popped into your head. Religion and politics. Well, guess what? This morning we've got a double whammy. Uh, We're going to be touching on both subjects, religion and politics. Uh, In terms of uh, uh, that subject matter, what in the world are we doing? What What are we thinking, right? Uh, why do you suppose we have, generally speaking, of course, uh, such a distaste for having discussions on topics like politics? Why do you suppose so many of us actively avoid conversations uh, on politics? I have a theory, and uh, I think somewhere at its root has something to do with fear. What is it that we fear when we begin to engage on the subject of politics? Well, there's a number of pitfalls. There's a number of pitfalls we can find ourselves stuck in. If you're like me, you're the kind of person like me that wants to be liked, right? I feel like to some extent we're all like that. We all want to be loved. And and if if I say the wrong thing, how does that affect the prospects of you liking me? It might hurt them, right? 
So, so maybe I just shouldn't say anything at all, especially as it pertains to politics. Or how about this? Uh, the subject of politics comes up and someone asks me to state my position. And what if I can't articulate my position well, right? What if it exposes my ignorance on a complicated matter? Maybe it's just best that I don't say anything at all. I, I don't want you to, to think ill of me in that manner. I don't want you to reject me. Or, or what if it's this? Sometimes we have a tendency to avoid talking about the things that we dread. I remember when my wife was pregnant with our first son, uh, I was always amazed at how there was always someone who wanted to describe the horrors of childbirth, right? Uh, no, not focus on the joy that awaited her in bringing a human into the world, but, but, but the torture that her body was about to go through, right? What was my wife's general response? You know, I'd rather not. <laughs> I'd rather not. Of course she didn't want to focus on that, rightfully so. Uh, what's the world going to look like after November 3rd? Could we just not talk about that? Could we just avoid that? You see how fear can be at the root of our distaste for a topic like politics? And maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but the Bible has a lot to say about the subject of fear. In fact, the passage that we uh, read that was probably just read for you a moment ago is out of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter tells us a lot about fear. The, the, the book of 1 Peter, much like many of the books in the New Testament, it's a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Peter to a, a diverse group of Christians living in what at the time was an area firmly under Roman rule. And, and do you know what the main theme of this letter was? It was a letter that was saying, hang on, hold on, hold on. It, it's about to get rough. It's about to get really rough, right? You see, they weren't on the verge of facing an election with perhaps an unfavorable outcome, whoever wins. They were on the verge of facing suffering and persecution, the likes of which many of us have never seen anything like it. You see, at the time of this writing, there was an emperor over the Roman kingdom named Nero. And Nero's attitude towards the church, even the word hostile is a bit of an understatement. So when the church faces this kind of fear, when the church faces this kind of rejection, might it inform us on how we are to face whatever fear confronts us? Might it inform us on how we behave towards people who stand against us? Even if the person is a brother or sister in Christ, how does the apostle answer this question? He, he says this, he says this, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. But how in the world do we do that? How in the world do we do that in such a contentious age? Well, first things first. We need to, we need to understand something of who we are, okay? And second, we need to understand something of who he is, who Jesus is. And if we, if we understand something of who we are, and, and then we have a better understanding of who he is, Perhaps it can change how we act. Who we are, who he is, and how we act. Those are the three things that we're, we're going to discuss this morning. Whenever my family and I go on a vacation somewhere, my, my kids always have a specific request for me, and that is, please find somewhere with a pool and a hot tub. They want both, right? Uh, we recently stayed somewhere that offered both those amenities, but much to my surprise, the nicest offering they had in regards to a pool and a hot tub was restricted to adults only. It was an adults only area. How do you suppose my kids reacted to that? Something to the effect of, I thought we lived in a free country, right? 
What was my reaction? A pool for adults only. Hmm. At the moment when every other aspect of our trip centered around entertainment for the kids, an adult-only pool sounded pretty good. That was my first thought. What do you think my reaction would have been when I was their age? Pretty similar to their reaction now. How dare they? We're not animals, right? What do you suppose this reveals? What do you suppose this reveals? The Apostle Paul teaches us in the first chapter of Romans that the consequence of sin in rejecting what God has revealed to us is that our minds are darkened, right? Sin clouds the mind. It, it impairs our ability to think clearly. We're, we're still left after the fall with a capacity to reason. For instance, my mind can still inform me with a great deal of certainty that you can't play billiards with bowling balls, right? It's an impossibility. I can say that with a high degree of certainty, yet at the same time, each one of us is given to making mistakes in our thinking, right? Or shortchanging our thinking somehow. Even as I say this, I bet some of you right now are distracted by thinking of how you can make it uh, possible to play pool with bowling balls. It's possible. So sickness, disease, death, these are all products of the fall. The mind and its ability to think and reason is impacted by the fall as well. Just like my bias when I think about an adult-only pool. I'm the same human that I was when I was my kid's age. But adult-only pool, now that impacts me differently as I get older. Our natural disposition affected by sin is to see life first through our own eyes. When you read the account of the fall of mankind, did you ever notice their reactions to the Lord when he comes looking for them? Why did you eat the fruit? Not me, God. It wasn't me. It was the woman that you gave me. And Eve's response? Well, yeah, it was the serpent. The serpent deceived me. By extension, she's saying, the serpent that you created, God, right? But really, technically, it's, it's not my fault. It's all a very self-centered defense. I recently received some bad news about a friend. Uh, I'd fallen out of touch with him over the last several years, and I even tried to reach out to him to see how he'd been doing, but I didn't receive a response. I used to look up to this friend a great deal. In fact, I, I so admired the way he conducted himself from a professional standpoint that I often wished that I was him. I often wished that I had his abilities. I really had a great deal of admiration for him. I still do. Well, recently I discovered that he'd gotten himself into some trouble. Uh, he'd engaged in some inexcusable conduct. And when I heard the news, I was, I was devastated. And after hearing the news, I said to my wife, can you believe that I'm dumbfounded? I'm, I'm dumbfounded. Can you, did you ever think that he was capable of doing something like that? And my wife looked at me with eyes that didn't quite affirm my statement. And I said to her, what, did you know something? Did you suspect something? And she explained to me how she had observed certain behaviors, some things that he did, some, some things that he said that were clear warning signs. And as she detailed these things, I thought to myself, you know, you're right. How did I miss these things? Do you know why I didn't see the warning signs? Do you know why I didn't notice the warning signs? Because I didn't want to see him. I didn't want to see him. Because of sin, I have this tendency to see life through eyes that most benefit me. Ever since sin entered the world, my impulse is not to say, hey, wait, 
how might I be wrong here? How, how might I not be seeing this correctly? We don't do that first. That's not our first impulse because of sin. Have you ever wondered why those of us who claim to be Christians have such a, a widely varied s- scope of beliefs? And I mean both politically and theologically. You know, we all start with the same information. We all start with the same word of God, yet, yet we arrive at such very different conclusions sometimes. Why is that? Is the Bible really that, that confusing? Is the Bible really that unclear? No. No, you see, it's not the Bible. <laughs> the Bible isn't the problem. The problem is that we, we still live with the effects of the fall. In our minds, all of us, we suffer from what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. And what that means is, like it or not, I approach life and everything in it with certain biases. I tend to see life through my own eyes and carry with me a tendency to want to interpret the things that, that uh, the way that, that most benefits me. And what that means is, is that whenever I'm certain that I'm right, I may be wrong. That's true for all of us. As certain as we may be that we're right, we may be wrong. Sin clouds the mind, and everyone, every single person who has ever walked this earth is given to making these types of errors. Errors that are influenced by emotion and personal bias. Every single person carries with them these effects of sin. Everyone, everyone. Well, except for one, except for one person. That's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The Word made flesh. When Jesus spoke, he was able to speak without being influenced by the clouding nature of sin. His positions, his thoughts were unaffected by sin. But when you and I hear those words that he spoke, sin takes its toll. So so what do we do? We need to double down and focus on his words, right? So that's, that's something about me. That's something about you. That's our first point we wanted to discuss. Something about who we are. We're affected by the clouding nature of sin those ever-persistent and ever-present remnants of the fall. You and I suffer from the noetic effects of sin. We see life and everything in it with bias. What about who he is? What about who Jesus is, right? The one that isn't suffering with the noetic effects of sins, the one to walk the earth without being affected by those clouding effects of sin. What does the Bible tell us about who Jesus is? The scriptures tell us in Hebrews 4, 15, The author of Hebrews tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus lived as a man, not like a man, as a man, fully God, fully man. He walked the earth, yet he did so without giving in to those clouding effects of sin. The Apostle Peter is asking us, to live our lives, to conduct ourselves in such a way that reflects the nature of Christ. He tells us to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Again, these are are the commands that the apostle is giving to the church who is about to face opposition that some of us may never be able to comprehend. And he's saying, as you face this opposition, As you face this kind of suffering and persecution, here's what you have to remember. Here's what you have to remember. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So how do we apply that? How do we apply this instruction to the political season that we're in right now? Just as I said before, at the root of our tension, the the root of our unsettling outlook is a spirit of fear. 
we fear the outcome. We fear that this is something that will divide us as a nation. We feel that this is something that will, that will divide us as a church. Don't, don't you think the early church feared many of the same things? Don't you think there were politics at play even in the early church? How do we behave toward an emperor that wants to destroy us? Do, do we fight back? Do we run? Do we comply with what they're asking us to do? Don't you think they asked those questions of each other? And don't you think they maybe didn't always agree on everything? On how best to deal with what faced them? Peter's command to them remains the same. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You see, as Peter tells the church these things, don't think that those were characteristics at random. He was looking at Christ. He looked at the character of Christ and he pulled those five things from the character of Christ. As Edmund Clowney wrote, like the fingers of a hand, they radiate from one center and work together. The key to them all is the love of grace. They reflect the grace, love, and compassion of Jesus Christ. Do you see how profound this is? You and I, like it or not, approach everything, including and especially politics, with bias. Like it or not. Jesus was the one without sinful bias. So how do we live in such a way where we're less affected by our own bias? We anchor ourselves. We anchor ourselves to the truth of Christ. We anchor ourselves to the one who had no sinful bias. How do Christians find unity? How do Christians display unity? Even if we don't agree on, on the issues of, of justice, race, taxes, and health care, Christians find and display their unity in the understanding of the gospel. This is why Peter points us to the character of Christ, which is not unlike what the Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians, excuse me, in Philippians chapter 2. He said this, have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves. What is your mindset during this political season? What is the spirit who, who lives in you pushing you towards the character of Christ? So the apostle says, Philippians 2, 5 and following, I love this verse. I've used it so many times, even in the last few weeks. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming to the point, by be, uh, to he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Got ahead of myself a little bit there. In other words, what was rightfully his, what rightfully belonged to Christ, the position that he had a rightful claim to, one of power, one of authority, one of glory, honor, praise, adoration. He had every right to those things, and all those things were his. What did he do with those things? He willingly set them aside. For what purpose? To become a servant. Our willingness to submit ourselves to one another, to become servants, is what has the power to undercut anything else we don't see eye to eye on. Let me say it again. Our willingness to submit ourselves to one another, to become servants, is what has the power to undercut anything else we don't see eye to eye on. Before I got married, uh, if you would have asked me who my best friend was, I would have told you it was my brother. Uh, we both served as, as best man at, uh, at one another's weddings. But you know, if 
you would have looked back on many of the days uh, of our youth. I, I think you would have seen what could only be described as, as rivalry, sometimes bitter rivalry. We were rivals and, and maybe even extreme behavior that, that extended beyond just rivalry. I remember instances where we had actual fistfights, right? I remember another instance we got to the point of literally trying to spit on each other. And it wasn't a game, it was anger. I remember name calling, many of which I would be embarrassed to say to you today as I know my kids will probably hear this. I remember yelling, lots of yelling. I remember great unwillingness to share what's mine is mine and what's yours is should be mine too. But eventually there was a turning point. And I remember it quite vividly when that turning point was. How do you go from bitter rivals to best friends? I believe it was in the seventh grade and uh, my brother was in the ninth. He was given an assignment to write an essay simply titled, My Best Friend. Do you know who he cited as, a best, as his best friend? Much to my surprise, it was me. And, and I wasn't sure why he picked me. Perhaps, perhaps it was a realization that good or bad, we had probably spent more time together, more so than any other friend that we had. Perhaps it was the understanding that whenever we may have had to uproot ourselves as a family, we always had at least one person who would consistently be there. I remember my mom made him read the essay before he turned it in once he'd finished it. And I remember it brought me to tears. It broke me. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of those terrible things that I described before, the behavior, either the spitting, the fighting, some of that uh, may have happened even after the essay was written. But the essay was the line in the sand. Come what may, fight, spitting, yelling, acts of violence, you're my brother and you're my best friend and nothing will change that. One act, one act whereby my brother set aside every argument he'd ever had, one act where he emptied himself of whatever rightful claim that he had, that changed everything, that changed everything. In the same manner, church, you and I, you and I, whatever our differences, are united by something greater, an act of selflessness whereby our Savior set aside his rightful claims for the sake of his brothers and sisters. And in so doing, do you see what was gained? More than just a, a best friend for life, though he's that too. But he reconciled us to God Almighty. He repaired a hopelessly fractured relationship and brought it to a place of hopeful certainty. Doesn't that sound like something we could use right about now? What differences do we have with one another? Can we examine them through our brother's eyes first, set aside our rightful claims and, and, and put ourselves in the place of a servant? This is what Christ did for us. When we understand this, it, it fundamentally changes us. It changes how we act. This, this is our third point. When we have an understanding of, of the grace that's been extended to us and, and carry with us, the view that of, of what awaits us, it fundamentally changes us. We see the world with a new set of eyes and they're not our own. What, what sort of questions are you asking yourself in this political season? What, what if my taxes go up? You know, what if the environment takes a hit? What if democracy goes away? Please remember that this instruction Peter was giving to the church was being given to, to people who were facing the real prospect of losing their very lives. Yet Peter's instruction remains the same. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, a humble mind, and he goes on, suffer for the sake of righteousness, have no fear nor be troubled, 
Be willing to suffer for doing good. Why? Why? Because you know the hope that awaits you. You know the, the power of the resurrected of Christ, which is the guarantee that whatever befalls you, you know the power of the resurrected Christ is the guarantee that whatever befalls you can overcome the grace that's been given to you. Excuse me, it can't overcome the grace that's been given to you. Whatever, whatever befalls you, it can't overcome the grace that's been given to you. So that when the world sees you, when the world sees you, that when the world watches you, when the world watches you, church, you present a gentle and respectful defense for this hope that's in you, even when you're slandered. Don't you see, the world needs to see this. The world needs to see this. The Christian has a hope that transcends any struggle or suffering that the world may present us. Peter, in our passage today, in speaking of suffering, he's speaking of suffering for the sake of Christ. And in the process, he's arming Christians against attack, attacks and showing them how the very circumstances that we face, persecution, torture, separation from family, and yes, even death, can be turned into opportunities to put the hope we have uh, in us on display for the whole world to see. Consider Peter himself. Do you remember the actions of this disciple? This is the same one who, when the temple guards came to arrest Jesus, he took out his sword and made a feeble attempt to protect the Messiah he dreamed up for himself. And what does Jesus say? It doesn't happen like this, Peter. This is not the way it goes. It happens the opposite of how you think it should happen, Peter. It's a paradox. There is life in my death. There is hope in suffering. There's gain in loss. This is the same Peter who soon thereafter denied Christ three times for fear of what would happen next. I do not know him. I do not know him. I do not know him. It's the same guy. But the one who writes this letter, he now understands the truth of the resurrection. He now understands the certainty of the gospel and what awaits him. And then this Peter, the same disciple, would soon be the accused. And he would no longer hide by the fire, watching from a distance, denying the Savior. He would soon stand trial before the same tribunal that examined Jesus and refuses their order to be silent. We must obey God rather than men, he testified. The one who understands the reality of Christ and the hope that lies within them is the one who will undergo a fundamental change to reflect the character of Christ. They're the ones that understand. Nothing is more important than this. You see, the antidote to the fear of anything is the awareness of the glory of the Lord himself. I want to leave you with, with one final picture, one last mental image that I pray would be pinned to the forefront of your minds this political season. And that is the image of the faithful Saint Stephen, who we meet in, in the sixth chapter of Acts. When we meet Stephen, we see that he had opponents too. His opponents accused him of blasphemy. They lied against him and set him up. They set up a kangaroo court to try him and sentence him to death. So you might say he was misunderstood and misrepresented politically. You see, there are a number of ways that Stephen could object here. How did he handle it? Yes, he spoke the truth. Make no mistake about it, he spoke the truth. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, you can read his testimony, which is probably the most detailed and concise history uh, of, 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 in Scripture of Israel and God's interaction with Israel. He gave them the gospel. Stephen gave them the gospel. He gave them the thing that transcends politics. Yes, that included reminders to the court of their rebellion and idolatry, as well as their failure as the chosen people of God and their failure to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. 
He didn't sacrifice truth. He spoke gospel truth. Understanding sin is part of understanding the gospel. How effective was Stephen's speech, though? Arguably the best and greatest testimony in the New Testament? Well, he was stoned to death. You might say he lost that debate. But with his dying breath, he echoed the words of Jesus Christ on the cross and made a plea for the very ones hurling stones at him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen, full of grace, full of truth. But I also want to leave you with one other impression, too, from this very account. We can read at the conclusion of Mark's gospel that, that Jesus was taken up to the heavens and, and sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God. There's a symbolic element to that description. Seated at the right hand of God is a, is a position of authority. You see, at the right hand of God, that's a place of authority where, where Jesus rules. He sits at his throne, at his rightful place. The king sits at his throne. However, as they raise their stones to Stephen and hurl them at him one by one, we're told that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The heavenly advocate stands in the presence of his father who welcomed his first martyr. A theologian by the name of F.F. F. Bruce said, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. Christ stands for you. He stands before his Father, and he lives to make intercession for you. That's what the table you're about to approach testifies to. This is what awaits you. It's, it's our understanding of this. When we understand this, when we approach everything in life with this understanding, it transcends anything else that stands before us or that comes between us. May the church of God know this, live it, and put it on display for a world who desperately needs to hear it and see it. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we need you. More than anything else, we need you. Though we still wrestle with sin, we thank you that you have not left us without hope. You gave us your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us all to reorient our thoughts and our actions so they reflect the reality of what awaits us. And help us to show this to our neighbors, our city, and to our world. Not for our sake, but for the glory of your name. It's in the name of Christ that we pray this. Amen. Thank you.